Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. I was born in a country town, Cooma, um, just at the foot of the Snowy Mountains. And I moved from there to Norfolk Island and then to Sydney when I was about seven. So I'd moved around a lot as a kid and had a strong sense of family because we were always together. Um, but also, certainly, I came to realise very young that that people didn't see Aboriginality as a positive thing. And, um, you know, and obviously that was quite true through most of my life. Even as a young adult, I was asked what nationality I was and I said Aboriginal very proudly. And the person said, don't worry, you can't tell. Professor Larissa Berendt is a Uluri and Gamilaroi woman. She's a lawyer, writer, filmmaker and broadcaster who has often found herself at the intersection of feminism and race issues. There are still times where you see a blindness and, um, you know, I remember when the Mabo case came down and the women's electoral lobby said that they wouldn't have a position on Mabo because it wasn't a feminist issue. And a few of us took issue with them about it and said, well, Aboriginal women lose their land at a greater rate than Aboriginal men. Anthropologists who came out and mapped all these places were men, always assumed men were in charge, recorded men's history and not women's history. So it's actually harder for women to make claims based on historical archive. And we have lost our cultural heritage and our sites at a much higher rate. There is no way you could say that native title is not a feminist issue. And once they were confronted with that point of view, they did change their position on that. So, you know, I think sometimes you still see a bit of a a blind spot around that. But my sense is once you start to have the conversation, both sides become empowered by that. This is Witch Hunt. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and we're looking at what comes after Me Too. There are many times through history where feminism has been accused of being a movement for the benefit of white, middle and upper class women. Larissa's example shows that this can be true, that sometimes a movement can leave its most vulnerable members behind. Examining how different types of disadvantage overlap is often called the study of intersectionality. Today, we've brought together three women whose backgrounds complicate their relationship with Me Too. 
You've already met Larissa. We're also speaking to Ruby Hamad, a writer. I generally write about, I guess, what you would call social justice issues, racism, feminism, and my research is on, my, my PhD research is on media coverage of the Middle East. And Jordan Raskopoulos. I'm a comedian, entertainer, YouTube celebrity, and other <laughs> transgender woman that's relevant to this conversation, yeah. And front woman of Access of Awesome. So what does intersectionality mean to them? Well, look, I mean, I guess there's a there's a simple explanation and there's a complex explanation. And I guess, you know, when we sort of think about it in terms of how we write about it and feminist analysis or Indigenous affairs, it's always about where you would have otherness that is that is of different types. So you're not um, in the dominant mould. So Indigenous women, um, gay um, men, all of that sort of thing, where you've got more than one identity that would, would be competing in a space. Um, so for, for myself as an Indigenous woman, um, I guess um, it's about where in my, in my experience I'm asked to kind of separate who I am into compartments that fit other people's ideas of what identity is. I mean, I don't think of myself in terms of parts of me. I'm just who I am. But I think for those of us who find ourselves in these these intersections, it's because we don't fit the dominant narrative and we're being asked to pull ourselves apart to try and fit into the into the boxes that you'd tick on a census form. That's oh, a really great way of, of articulating that, I think. So. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's about recognising that systems of power and systems of marginalisation are linked that they don't exist separate to one another and that they can counteract each other and they can reinforce each other. And it's about recognising that uh, and it's all fluid and that it's essentially a whole bunch of strings strung together across a room, you know, and if you pull on one, it affects others and it makes some stronger and it makes some weaker. And it's about recognising that and being open to the dialogue of how systems of power and marginalisation interact. Yeah, and I, I think it's well, it's important to to note where you know the, the term came from. So, so before the the you know the term intersectionality was coined, it the, the concept was already there, or this this idea that oppression doesn't hit certain people from only one angle. And like you know, many social justice movements, it started with with black women and, and black women in, in America, and it was uh, the the because, you know, they couldn't separate their, their blackness from their their woman, uh, from being women, uh, they were hit very by oppression specifically as black women in a way that black men weren't and white women weren't. Uh, so the racism and the, uh, the, the the sexism together to form, you know, a new kind of, of unique uh, oppression. And that is when, uh, you know, in the, the late 80s is, is Kimberly Crenshaw coined that, that that term intersectionality to to explain that you know in terms of you know, like a, like a traffic intersection where you've got racism coming this way and the sexism coming this way and they collide and then there's that black woman right there uh, so, and, and that you can't address her her way of of you know of, of moving and navigating in this world without addressing both her race and her sex and then of course it, it um 
you know, with with Crenshaw's uh, 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 blessing and, and encouragement, he got you know um, used in in different contexts. Mm. So with, you know, with trans women and, and other women of colour who weren't black and disabled women and sex workers, etc. So that's where it comes from, and I I think it's, it's also really important to 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 recognise that you know it's it's what what is intersecting is not. The people, it's the it's mm. the oppressions, yeah. and I think when we remember, you know, when we recognize that and put that at the forefront, it brings us back to this yeah. issue of addressing the structure, yes. not just the individual. So look, we are yeah. obviously affected uh, by these uh, discriminations um, as individuals, but we're targeted as members of a group, mm. uh, and I think it's it's important yeah. to note. And power is intersectional as well. Yeah, that power become stronger when it intersects with other power. I think that's... I think that's really right. I think people sort of think, oh, you're an Aboriginal woman, so you must get the the discrimination from being Aboriginal and then the sexism from being a, a woman, mm. as though that's how you exist in, mm. exist in your life. And the, the concept that actually there is a discrimination be, by virtue of just being an Aboriginal woman, mm. I think is really hard for, for people who don't think about how intersectionality plays out mm. in lived experience. It goes back to your point, I think, Jordan, of how important it is to tell stories, which was a very, very early part of the first wave feminism was about just telling a story, talking your truth. I mean, if there's one thing that I think still carries tra- the transformation uh, role of feminism through that still makes it relevant, it is that thing about unless you hear mm-hmm. the story of an individual, the, the power of a person's um, personal story, their personal narrative is actually the point of transformation. Yeah. I was born in Lebanon. My parents came here when I was two. Uh, they were uh, fleeing the, uh, the Lebanese civil war. It was definitely a struggle for the, the whole family uh, coming uh, here. Um, you know, my, my parents had six children at, at that time and they were working um, in, both of them worked in a plastics factory actually in, in, in St. Peter's. And I was always aware of, of, of difference, of being, of being different. And you, you come to realise you're never really fully one or the other, I guess. That's what it, what it comes down to. Never as much as I kind of grew up here and, you know, more comfortable speaking English uh, than I am now speaking Arabic. So you're, I'm obviously a product of that, but I'm also still a product of, of my 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 family's culture and, and background, and that's something that I've become increasingly more, more proud of and more kind of just not willing to uh, uh, tolerate any sort of being shamed for that. An example of... Um, Sexism and racism, you know, intersecting to to affect Arab and or you know Muslim women is a lot of the the abuse that I'll get from men online is unique to being from a Muslim mm. female background. So I'll get caught. So language here, sorry, I'll get called things like a you know a Hezbollah whore or you know an ISIS slut. Um, I'll get men telling me you know 
do you have a clitoris? Let me see it because of the whole, you know, oh. this uh, uh, this is some this idea that that you know FGM is this sort of this mandatory thing amongst all Muslim you know cultures, which is completely um, untrue, and, and you know, won't really get into to 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 that. But yeah, so so these are it is sexism and racism in a way that is only experienced by women from that particular background. So they, it's it's almost like they know they find a way to. So it happens, yeah. you know, with with. Uh, in Aboriginal women and mm-hmm. trans women and, you know, and even, like, you know, trans women of colour. Like, yeah. There's something about being a woman of colour mm. and being a trans woman of colour. Together, that the, uh, the mm. violence and yeah. hatred just skyrockets, mm. um, you know, and which is you're already, you know, you're already exposed to so much violence as a trans woman mm. and as a woman and, and, and as a black person. And then yeah. you combine all those together and then... You know, what's the life expectancy of a, yeah. of a woman, a trans woman of colour in the, in the... I don't know if Australia has those statistics, but in the US it's like 35, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's in, yeah. Yeah, in South America. So Brazil, yeah. Brazil. Uh, yes, it's, Brazil's another one where it's, yeah. it's shocking. And it's in the low... Th- imagine your life expectancy, you know, and then, and then you know, the uh, same as with, um, you know, in, in Indigenous uh, women, Indigenous men, the life expectancy is it's so low because of those, those, those uh, sort of those... Intersections of oppression, uh, and that's really that's that's you know that's what we have to get a- across. That it's not just oh I'm you know oppressed because I'm a woman and I'm Arab, and you just put these together, and it's not. It's no. a very unique, and it's and it's a way of undermining your entire value and your being as a person. Like it's it's a way of, of just essentially saying you're. You're useless on many and valueless on many different levels, and there's no point in you even, you know, trying. And that's that's what it's about. It's about trying to get, you know, yeah. your morale so low because it's like, well, how do you overcome, you know, this? Yeah. Uh, you're always reduced to these these totally. things, and it's it is exhausting. Absolutely, yeah. I'm always trained now. Yeah. These days, it's like, and, oh. um, yeah, that's like my my experience three, you know, three years ago before transition was that if I was exhausted, it was from my work. And if today if I'm exhausted, it's because I'm dealing with mm. assholes, you know. Yeah. And it's just, and it's at the point now where, yeah, it's just, I was, you know, when I started transition, I was so eager, you know, get my hands in and make a difference. And now, I'm so bloody tired, yeah. Um, and I've only had to suffer for the three years, you know. I think, I mean, I was definitely aware that things would change and I was definitely aware uh, how things would change, um, but not really aware of how that would affect me and how that would feel. Um, And I think when um, speaking to um, men who um, have an idea of, you know, women's experiences, they don't have the experience, you know. And I think the big, big thing that surprised me was constancy. You know, you know, I knew um, that it was difficult for women to walk alone at night, but I didn't really understand that you would be afraid constantly. You know, that fear would be with you every night or whenever you were alone or when, you know, that um, that is what surprised me, constancy. Do you think that men understand that? You know, um, a lot of guys... Um, Oh, let me, I'll, I'll talk to, about an experience. So um, pretty early on in my transition, so sh- shortly after coming out publicly, we did a show in um, New Zealand. And after the gig, 
I went to the bathroom and a dude followed me into the bathroom and while I was in the toilet, uh, started yelling at me through the door that I didn't belong there and just because you're in a dress doesn't make you a woman. Um, and then he just started peeing on the floor. Um, and it was really, really messed up. Like that's, um, And I was pretty shook by that. And when I spoke to the boys um, in my band, their response was, oh, my God, that's so weird. That is so weird and um, crazy and, you know, and there was a lot of compassion there and they supported me. But when I spoke to women in my life, there was an understanding and there was a similar experience, you know. And I think that's the thing is that men do experience instances of harassment or, or fear or, um, but they're weird. They're extraordinary, you know, the, um, whereas for women they are, Ordinary, and I think that's the thing about the Me Too movement was just to say actually these experiences are common amongst women, um, and it's a shared experience. You know the fact that I could talk about this about being followed by a man and harassed in a bathroom, and speaking to other women could come back and say, "Oh yeah, I've had something similar." What what are, something I've been uh, uh, feeling very recently is, is if there's anything worse than the feeling of being reduced to your you know your racial background or your or some aspect of your identity is to be erased from it and that's something that I um like you know I, I said I've, I've I've been having recently in conversations around around Syria uh this this um so so at the same time all these years where I've been writing about being you know racism and being Arab and, and being from a Muslim background and being attacked on those lines, you know, along racial and, and Islamophobic lines, now that I'm finding, because uh, I've started to speak out a little more uh, about, you know, my views on on Syria, and just, you know, just kind of getting shot down and saying, well, you're not really Syrian anyway, you live here. It's like, wait a minute. So, like, all this time I've been told, well, I'm not really Australian, I'm ever go back to where you come from. And now that I'm trying to sort of you know, tell you, you know, if you like, educate you. And, and I was trying to in a respectful way about um, what it's like, you know, to be from that part of the world uh, and hearing all these things being said and, and that you know are not true and trying to address them and then to then be told, well, that's not really you anyway. It's like, oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, so after all these years I've been reduced to my Arabness, I'm now being erased from it. And it's like, what? And it is interesting, like, you do get that very directed violence that's at your, your unique, um, your unique identity. Mm. But I think even the act of trying to get you to unpack that yeah. is, a, is an act yeah. of violence, to try and get you to split who you are into mm. compartments is actually a way of doing the same thing, of kind of um, chipping away at your confidence, breaking down mm. your strength and your resilience. And I think I think there's a big thing um, about building building pride in your difference as well. And I, I mean, obviously, pride is a big word in the LGBT plus community, and that's because pride is the opposite of shame, and that we live in a society that encourages us to feel shame, ashamed of who we are, and that what intersects those letters, and I feel like you know intersects a lot of marginalised people, is this sense that society is encouraging us to feel ashamed about about these aspects of ourselves. And the yield, the yielding that the society is doing is yielding to the point of acceptance. You know, all right, well, we will accept that you're different. We accept that you're different. Whereas we need to push past that towards pride. We need 
we need for ourselves and we need for our society to be proud of our difference because it's cool and it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know. And as a transgender person, there is, even, there is a sense, even amongst the trans community, for a lot of people that they don't want to be trans, you know, they want to be cisgender, you know, that their, their, trans, their transness is the source of so much of their discomfort and, you know, that they perceive their transness as a source of their discomfort and their oppression. And if they were born cis, their life would be better. And it would, but not on, or not in the sense of that um, it didn't come from them being trans, it became from society treating them poorly. And the thing is, I like being transgender. I like it. It's me. I would be a completely different person if I was born differently. I'd be a completely different person if I transitioned to a different point in my life. I like my life. I like who I am. I think I am interesting and I am cool. And I think my transness is intrinsic to that. And I want to talk about it. And I want you to talk about it with me. And it's okay that we're different because it's interesting when people are different. So I'm, you know, here a straight white woman. I know it's not your responsibility to tell me what I should do better, but... What what advice would you give to me? You know, it's hard to sort of give this blanket advice, but yeah. it's it's in every you know there there are different responses that we need. I would say say require. That's not quite the right word, but we need like we need that understanding from different you know in different different contexts. Um, but I guess a lot you know the the first thing would be the same as what's underlying the whole Me Too movement, which is you know believe us. If 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 a, if a woman of colour or a trans woman, disabled woman is saying what the way you're talking, the way you're acting right now is hurting me. It's a form of violence. I know you can't see it because you're on that side and I'm here, but, you know, um, understand that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not telling you this to make you feel bad. I think that's really strong, good advice. And, and in a way it is about that, um, the listening part. And I guess one one of the things that I think is a good example of that is um, people will often ring me and say, you know, we're doing this thing on domestic violence or we're doing this thing on discrimination in the workplace. Do you have any Aboriginal women who can come along and help us with what we want to do? You know, we want to be inclusive, so have you got an Aboriginal person who can come and come along and join what we're doing? And it just seems to me like that is fundamentally the wrong way to start. If somebody takes your advice, they would be actually saying, what is it that you want from us? Like, how can we help you? And that's, I think, a really fundamental shift. But I also think Jordan makes a really good comment too. It always reminds me of something that Jane Carrow says when she's often smacked down for being a middle-class white woman. And she said, well, if I don't speak out, of all the people who have the opportunity to say something, surely it's me. I should be the first out there. And I think there is something about finding that line between really listening, really listening, and then actually taking up your responsibility. And I guess... So what I'm hearing is kind of what, one of the fundamental things of Me Too was believe women. Mm. And so that goes for everyone. Yeah. If you're being told you're silencing me, you're not listening to yeah. me, believe the person who's yeah. telling you. And also listen. Listen mm. to other, find, make your responsibility to find other people's stories and to listen yeah. to them. And tell your story of change. Tell your story of how someone said something to you and it got through and it changed you, you know. Um, and celebrate that, like celebrate change. Um, you know, I think we, we're critical of people who have changed. Oh, you were never always that way. You know, I think when we, you know, talked about the yes vote and we were critical of politicians who would have voted no five years ago. And why are we critical of people changing? That's Mm. what we want. 
I agree that it would be great if we could celebrate change, but we seem to be going backwards in terms of our polarisation in politics and what side of politics we belong to. Identity politics is a classic example. The left and the right accuse each other of making everything about identity at the detriment of real and substantial change. How do we push through that? It's really hard, but it's not impossible. I think it is about recognising various systems of oppression, you know, and I think one thing that we don't talk enough about, well, no, no, I'll rephrase that. One thing that is difficult to talk about, ah, but I don't know, I don't even know what, class, I'm talking about class, right? Um, I think we live in a time where we've, we find it very difficult to talk about class. And there is a appearance that activism seems to be directed towards cisgender white men. And we forget or we fail to convey, I think we recognise it, but we fail to, to convey class and wealth and all those things and that the intersections of, of class are often left out of discussions. And so working class people do feel ostracised from the left and from activism and feel that activists don't fight for them. And I think we need to bring class into that discussion. And that brings other people in. Once we talk about the way in which wealth and power oppresses alongside, you know, race and gender and age and disability, you know, if we bring all of that into the discussion, then I think we can breed a sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. And we can also get to help people recognise their own problems again. I think one of the awful things about our society is that the working class have been convinced that they're not oppressed and that wealth is attributed to hard work. And so, you know, the idea that the wealth wealthy are wealthy because they've worked the hardest is believed. Um, and that is, what a swindle, <laughs> you know, what a, what a swindle. <laughs> And that there is a kinship of shared whiteness between, you know, the white working class and the powerful people of the world, the wealthy people of the world, and that they have tapped into that kinship of shared whiteness and redirected their fury. You know, these people are furious that they're poor and they're furious that they don't have jobs. And they've redirected that fury towards marginalised people. You know, the white working class believes that they are poor and unhappy because of migrants stealing their jobs or black people terrorising their neighbourhoods. And it's, it's outrageous that that's the, that's the case, you know. But at the same time, we are saying in our, our rhetoric, in our dialogue, that you are people of privilege because their perception of what we are saying is that white men are the problem and white men are people of privilege, of ultimate privilege. And they are saying, how can I be privileged if I am poor and I am unhappy? Please subscribe to Witch Hunt wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating or review if you can. You can also find us on theguardian.com.
Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply.